If you turn with me to the passage uh, for today's gospel lesson, it's printed on page 8 in your bulletins. I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And this is God's word. If you've been with us this past season, we've been walking through uh, St. Matthew's chapters 5 through 7, uh, Jesus' teachings on what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is really a series of teachings that lead us to know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, which means Jesus is basically describing what it would look like if you were to take the gospel, actually take the gospel, plant it into your life, and live it out. And he's saying here in this passage that a Christian, that's a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, a Christian, the gospel shapes and changes his relationship with money, his possessions. Now, this passage is, is uh, if you actually take a look at this passage, it's, uh, it's an interesting one because it's kind of a sandwich. Verses 19 through 21, Jesus starts to teach us about money. And then the middle part of the sandwich is verses 23 to 24. He kind of, it almost seems like a non sequitur. He goes in and starts talking about the eye and light. And then he comes back in verse 24 and starts talking about money again. So it's kind of a sandwich, but that sandwich gives us a, is a key to understanding what Jesus is saying about money and our relationship with money, our greed. So we're going to learn three things today. One, the power of money. That's the sandwich. Two, why does it have that kind of power? And lastly, how can we be free from that power? The power of money, why it has that power, how can you be free from that power? First, we're going to look at the power of money. That's verses 22 to 23. That's the middle part of this text. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body is full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. In other translations, uh, if you look at uh, the King James Version, if your eyes are single, or if you look at the New American Standard Version, the NASB, if your eyes are clear. And so Jesus is saying, really, by good, by healthy, if your eyes are clear, if there's a clarity, if there's a singularity, as in if there's a clear path, is there a simplicity in your eye? If, there, if your eyes are wise, in other words, if your eyes are not duplicitous, if your eyes are clear, it's going to take the light in, right? It's going to take light in, and then the rest of the body will be able to navigate the room based on what it sees. So if you have poor vision, if you have blindness, blindness is a condition of what? Not being able to see clearly. There's no clear path. 
because your eye is dark. It's unclear. Why is Jesus saying this? Now, in Luke chapter 11 and Luke chapter 12, Jesus also teaches about money. In fact, uh, there's virtually the same lesson embedded. But Jesus says this in Luke. He says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's what he says. He says, watch out. In other words, I want you to see clearly. Watch. Look for it. Be cautious. I want you to focus, he says. I want you to look for signs in your life for all kinds of greed. What's the warning? Greed, as a condition, is a money pathology. And one of the symptoms of greed, or one of the intrinsic qualities of greed, rather, is that it has a blinding effect on your eye and thus a blinding effect on your entire soul. Greed is a condition where your desire for wealth, your desire for money, your dependence on money clouds your vision, clouds your eye. You cannot see clearly anymore, so you can't navigate life properly. And so when he says, watch out, what he's saying, one of the intrinsic qualities, one of the intrinsic properties of greed is what? That you can't see it in your life. One of the conditions of greed is that you are blind to its condition. And, I mean, think about it. Why doesn't Jesus warn us about all kinds of hate? Why doesn't he warn us of all kinds of adultery? Is it because adultery or hate aren't as destructive as greed? No. It's because hate and adultery are not as deceptive, are not as hidden as greed. Greed is much more nuanced. Greed is very complex. It's got this distorting effect on your soul. Nobody ever conceives the reality that they may be greedy. Look, I've been a pastor in this church for seven years, about seven years, and then maybe the couple years prior in planning. And in this past decade, many people have come to me with concerns about their anger, concerns about their pride, concerns about bitterness, hurt, Marital problems, problems with their children, lust. But in these last 10 years, not a single person has ever come to me and approached me about their greed. Why? If you think about it, for one, when we think greed, when we think greed, we think of like Scrooge McDuck swimming in a pool of money. I love money, you know? And, and we think it's so big. Who's really like that? No one is like that. So that can't be an accurate picture of greed. Although Charles Dickens, Charles Dickens used to say, this is anecdotal, but they used to say that Charles Dickens, when he would run, walk through a street, people, he would write his books intending certain characters to be based on particular people in his life that he would know. And as he would walk down the street, people would come up to him and talk to him and say, you know, I just read your book, uh, you know, Christmas Carol. I just read your book. Who can possibly be as greedy as Ebenezer Scrooge? And again, this is anecdotal, but they said that Dickens would often be thinking of that person, that particular person who came to him to say, this is outrageous. What kind of person would be like this? But he was actually thinking of that particular person. That's what they would say. Now, we think of greed as like something this big, and so we can't possibly be greedy. 
when it actually begins this big. And it starts very, very small. You know, that's, that's one reason. Number two, you know when you're stealing something. You know, at least I hope you know, when you're committing adultery. You know when you hate somebody. But rarely do you know when you're greedy. Today, especially today, it's all the more difficult to admitting greed because there's so many nuances. Why? One, many of you here in this congregation, you're starting your careers. You're just barely getting by. And so there's a way to justify a lack of generosity in your life. Two, because of social marketing, social media, the internet, our blogs today, our connections to people as high as the president of your country, all the way down to the CEO of a particular country, your vice president that you work for, maybe a celebrity that seems at one point so, such a different life, influencers who bridge the gap. All these people seem so much more intimately connected in our lives. Social media has brought people together in a way with similar interests that there's become this digital pressure to live and because you're connected, you feel connected to these people who at one point in our uh, lives and generations were otherworldly. Social media, our digital world has brought us together. They're almost like our next door neighbors. And so there's this intrinsic pressure to wear the same clothes, drink the same drinks, frequent the same type of restaurants. Number three, we live in a much more socially conscious world today. And so a lot of people here, they just feel like they're giving enough. They feel like they do enough. But the reality is, churches report annually the average spending, the average giving in a church, when the Bible in most places talk about the tithe being 10%, churches give, most people in the church give a total of 1% on average of their salaries. Number four, in Western culture, Western culture is primarily individualistic, you do you type of culture, right? We tend to keep our finances. We tend to be, keep our spending habits. These things are very private. Jesus says, watch out. Watch out. Look, if you went to a doctor and your doctor says, watch out, you might be at risk for heart failure. Watch out. You may have cancer. You would do anything to make sure. You would seek professionals about the condition. You would read up on the condition. You would get online to look into the condition. You would make every appointment that your doctor says, hey, I need to meet with you to talk about this. You will never avoid your doctor. You will take every attempt, spend all of your energy to make sure, just to be clear about what this is. You will take every scan. You will take every test. You will talk to other people who have suffered to know. But rarely do we ask ourselves the important nuanced questions about greed. When the Bible says that greed destroys, greed ruins character, greed ruins your life, greed can rip apart families. That means that when most of us tend to ask one to two simple questions to dismiss or to justify our greed, we should be asking hundreds of questions about every nuance of greed in our lives, every complexity. Jesus says, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And so, that's the power. That's the power of money. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are clear, your body is full of light. 
But if your eyes are unclear, if they are not singular, if they are duplicitous, if they are unwise, your whole body, your soul will be filled with darkness and you will not be able to navigate the complexities of life. Two, why does it have that kind of power? In verse 19, a couple reasons. Verse 19, Jesus says, do not store for yourselves treasures on earth. So Jesus is saying, one, money has power because it promises security. He says, do not store it up. Why do we store anything up? Why do we save so much? He says, money has a power because it promises security that only can be found in God himself, in your relationship with God. And so we need to save We don't have a close relationship with God. We are not intimate with God. We don't know God in a sense. And because of that, we need to save. We need to be secure. We need to find security. We don't want to give. He says, that's the disease. That's the pathology. We think money is a cure for our anxieties. We think money is a cure for our worry. And so we save. We need to be secure. Notice, immediately after this passage, and that's the next week we're going to be looking into this passage, Jesus teaches about what? He teaches about worry. He teaches about anxiety. He says, do not worry about what you will eat, what you will wear. Look at the birds. They don't store, he says. But God feeds them. And aren't you more valuable than the birds? So part of that pathology is this sickness that leads us to save. And that's the, we look at people and we say, well, you know, that person is stingy. They're saving. They want to be secure. Number two, Uh, Jesus says, don't store up treasure on earth. What's a treasure? A treasure is something that you protect, that's close to you. You hide it away. It's part of you. It's your identity. It's that precious thing that determines, defines your sense of worth. And so for some of us, what we've done is we've taken money, and money has become the source of our status. Money has become the source of our approval. Money is what makes us beautiful because with money you have tremendous spending power which is very convenient but you have tremendous spending power and you can take that and you can feel beautiful with your money and so here whereas the prior part the prior symptom once in we say i need to save i need to save i can't give we say i need to spend i need to buy things for myself i need to look a certain way that's the disease that's what he's saying again jesus says in this next passage right in the passage about worry he says look at the lilies They don't labor. They're not overworking. But God clothes them. And Solomon, Solomon was a king. Solomon had all the wealth. Solomon, in all his splendor, never dressed like them. And if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, will he not clothe you? Will he not provide for you? Solomon was a king. He had all the splendor, yet all of his splendor was not dressed like the lilies. The lilies, mere plants, mere grass of the field. Only God can truly make you beautiful. If you use money to give you a sense of worth, what that means is if you you need money to feel important, if you need money to feel like you have power, if you need money to feel like now I'm acceptable, now I I, I can get in with people, now I can be in certain circles that make me feel significant and and my work is meaningful, you're going to spend a lot to get in, to get into the right job, to get into the right school, to get into the right home, to get into the right neighborhoods. When you look to money for that, 
it will turn you into an arrogant person. It will turn you into a worrying person. It will turn in, so you can't live on the inside and people can't live with you on the outside. And, then, and, and so you end up being out anyways. You see that? In verse 19, Jesus says, don't store up treasures on earth where moths and rust destroy. In other words, money giving you security, money as a source of your worth, those are lies. Think about it. It's silly to say that if I have enough money, then I am secure, then I'm safe. If I have enough money, then I have a sense of worth. I feel worthy. Now, having money will make life more convenient, sure. But let me ask you this. Is it a lack of convenience in your life that makes life difficult? Really? No. We know this. It's illness. It's death. It's broken relationships, broken families, violence, evil. Money will never be able to cure, will never be able to solve the most important things in your life. Never be able to do that. In fact, in many cases, it will exacerbate those things, those brokennesses in your life. And so if you treasure the world, it will wear out. Moths and rust will destroy. You will wear out. It will wear you out. If you place your, your faith and your hope, if you find your treasure in, in your wealth, in your net worth, as your sign of worth, he says, this is where thieves break in and steal. In other words, money gives us the illusion of security, an illusion of eternity, an illusion that I am safe and I am secure and I have control in a world that is out of control, in a world that is dangerous and violent. And so you're never secure. You never, nothing lasts forever. You are never in control. And yet, in verse 21, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You will do anything for the things that you treasure. You will work endlessly for the things that you treasure. You will give anything for that treasure. You will die for that treasure. You will sacrifice everything for that which you treasure. And so in verse 24, Jesus says, This is why you can't serve both God and money. You will hate one or love the other. You will be devoted to one. You will slave, enslave yourself to one. You will bind yourself to one, and you will despise the other. To be devoted is what? To work, to serve, to sweat over, to give yourself to those things. Jesus says you can't do that. Say that you can't do that. A Christian and his relationship with money, he's got to be a bit more detached from his money because he has bound himself to Jesus. He has bound himself to God. You can only be shaped by one. So we've talked about money as a power. We've talked about why it's got that power. Lastly, how can you be free in that power? Verse 19, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Store for yourselves treasures in heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying, invest. You've been investing in all the wrong things. Invest in the gospel. Number one, he says, the gospel is a treasure. 
But number two, it's the most precious treasure. Why? Because nothing can destroy it. Moths and rust do not destroy. Thieves cannot break in and steal. In fact, the more of it you give away, the more it grows in your life. It's the most precious treasure. Nothing can destroy it. It lasts forever. And so it is your security. It's worthy to be your security. It's worthy to be your foundation. It's worthy to give you ultimate identity, ultimate beauty in your life. Any other treasure, any other treasure in your life except for Jesus will insist that you have to work for it. Any other treasure in your life except for Jesus will insist that you have to die for it. And it has no regard It has no regard for your health, no regard for what you have, no regard with how far you've come. Any other treasure except for Jesus insists that you work for it. Jesus Christ is the only treasure that works for you, that works for your sake. Every other treasure insists that you die for it. Jesus Christ is the only treasure, the precious treasure that died for you. He left his Father's throne above so free, so infinite his grace emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Jesus Christ had everything, all the heavenly treasure, which means that he had the title, he had the power, he had the honor, he had the significance, he had the right to the inheritance to the kingdom of God as God's only begotten son, which means he had the power and the authority and the status and the riches But on the cross, the high king has come down. You know what he said his glory was? Jesus Christ said, the hour of my glory has come. You know what that glory was? He was talking about the cross. On the cross, what do you see? Jesus Christ is working. And he's laboring. The creator of the universe the sustainer and governor of the universe is working and he's laboring and he's sweating and he's just pouring out. His blood is pouring out. He's giving himself. What did Jesus have to work for that he didn't already have? On the cross, you see Jesus bleeding and he's dying. He's dying for his treasure What did Jesus have to die for that he didn't already have? On the cross, you see him emptying himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me is what he says. What he's saying is, I have lost you, my Father, my God, the center of all of my motivation. God as my identity, God as my security, God as my beauty, God as my source of worth. And he has forsaken me. And so he was bruised on the outside, beaten on the outside, bleeding on the outside. And yet what he's saying is this is the ultimate ugliness, to be forsaken by God. And so now I am wasting away. The moths and the rust have destroyed me. The thieves have come and stolen away my life. The infinite has become ultimately finite and has died. Why? Jesus Christ said, I have sacrificed my beauty so you could have beauty. I have sacrificed my worth so you could have lasting worth. And so he was stripped naked. Why? So that we could be clothed in his righteousness. 
Jesus Christ bore the penalty of our sin in full, in full. And there was no security. There was no shield. In fact, he was stripped naked to bear the infinite wrath of God for our sakes. He's lost infinite security and infinite beauty and has become spiritually bankrupt. Why? Philippians chapter 2, that's printed as your call to worship, says that he has become nothing. He had emptied himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Why? Why? What was so precious that he was willing to die for that? And the answer is you. You were that precious. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen people, chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. If you take that phrase, belonging to God, in the Greek, that's the word possession or treasure, so that you could become his treasure. Jesus Christ was willing to give everything up for you. And knowing this, trusting this, investing your life into that truth, is the only way that can free you from the power and grip of money and greed in our lives. That's what it is. When you see Jesus, when you see that you are Jesus' treasure, when you see that you are Jesus' treasure, his precious treasure, then he can become your treasure. When you see Jesus treasuring you, dying for you, you can treasure him. You will see his beauty, and you will be able to treasure him, and that will loosen your grip on money. You can only serve one, Jesus says. If you loosen your grip on one by beholding the beauty of the other, the ultimate beauty, the ultimate richness, for constantly pursuing after earthly treasure, you just need a greater treasure. No amount will ever make you stop. In fact, that it's an addiction. It's a sickness. It's a pathology. A pathology to save and a pathology to spend on ourselves. And yet to be freed from that anxiety and to be freed from that depression that results. This generation is marked by anxiety and depression. That's what they say. That of all the virtues of this current generation, this younger generation in our society today, they say that one of the fallacies and one of the breakdowns of this part of society is that it's marked by anxiety and depression. How can you be freed from the grip of that? And what money contributes to that? The overworking of that, the slavery to money. You can only serve one. You have to behold a greater wealth, behold a greater treasure, behold a greater richness that we find in Jesus. How do you apply this? I'm just going to give us some practical, three practical we could have a list. We can go on and on about this, right? Uh, but I leave that to you to discuss in your community groups and uh, in your circles. One, do you fight over money? What I mean by that is, are you constantly comparing yourself with others over money? 
Are you constantly judging other people because of them having too much money or not enough money? Are you constantly judging yourself because you either have too much money or not enough money? Are you raising, uh, are you looking and judging and bearing status on people based on how much money they have? Are you looking down on people who have money or people who don't have money? Are you looking down on people because how much they spend or how little they spend? Is your money or your, your wealth or your job or your assets what makes you feel superior to other people? If so, it doesn't matter how much you have. You can have lots of money or you can have very little money. Money has a power over you. That's number one. Do you fight with other people over money? Two, you should get generous. In verse 22, when Jesus says, if your eyes are good, if your eyes are clear, another way that's translated in Greek is if your eyes are generous. Do you have a generous eye? Do you have a giving eye? Do you look at places and people that you can invest in and give to? If Jesus Christ tithed with his body and tithed with his blood, which is to say he gave up everything, and you are able to behold his beauty transferred, his righteousness transferred to you, there's the power if you see his generosity poured out for you, you being his treasure, you can treasure others. You can treasure others, and you can give sacrificially. Now, don't make any mistake. I'm not saying that people have to earn that. We are here planted in the city, and we're serving people who may never acknowledge God, never ever come to a personal relationship with God. It doesn't matter whether or not they've earned that generosity then it's because if they have to earn your generosity, you're not generous. You see, you're kind of paying them in a sense. Do you have a generous eye towards others? You know, the tithe in the Bible is a bit more nuanced than you think. In a lot of places in the Bible, uh, Scripture says the tithe is defined as 10% of your income, and I'm not going to get into gross or net or any of that. That's nonsense. In uh, other people, we talk about, um, the, the Scripture talks about the widow with two coins, Still, in other places, you see people giving enormous amounts. They tithe, and then they tithe on top of their tithe. You see that? So the tithe is a bit more complex. It's nuanced. My, my favorite preacher, he says something um, like this at one point, and he basically says, uh, if you want to give, you take a number. You take a number that makes you virtually fall out of your chair, and then you give more than that. What he's really saying is this, give sacrificially. Give in a way that hurts you. Give in a way that hurts you. Why? Because one, you were giving as an act of freedom. Jesus Christ gave up his status to give us the only status that you need. Jesus Christ gave up his honor and, and his richness to give us the only richness that we need. Jesus Christ gave up his security and his beauty and his identity so that you would have the security and identity and beauty of the Father. That's the ultimate security and identity and beauty. It's why we're constantly pursuing after these things. Give as an act of freedom. Give it as an act of freedom from the, from the grip of money. 
But secondly, we, whenever you give sacrificially, whether you give a little or a lot, you end up with less than what you had. And so it makes you a little bit more dependent. Why do we give until it hurts? Because it makes you dependent. You're giving as an act of dependence. Independence Day is coming around. So you're giving as an act of independence, but you're also giving as an act of dependence. We say we depend now more on the Father who clothes the lilies of the field, who feeds the birds of the air. Surely you are more valuable than they, right? Now, I mean, we just finished a a mini-series on the Lord's Prayer Now, you kind of bring it all together. When we pray, give us this day our daily bread, why do we give? We give in light of God's glory. We give in light of God's kingdom. We give in light of God's mission, right? That's what we've said. And so now when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, it's because we have needs. And we trust that God will supply us for every need because we are living in light of God's glory and God's kingdom and God's mission. We give as an act of dependence. Lastly, You need radical community. You need community in your life. Your closest friends who are believers, even the ones who are not believers, will know. They'll see the signs and the symptoms of your greed. They will be able to ask all the nuanced questions because they know you. If you don't know anybody, you got to get to know people. You got to plug in. You got to get close enough to the point where people can actually challenge you on how you spend your money. They can diagnose your problems. They can also demonstrate generosity. Look, of a lot of people, if a community of people are coming together and sacrificially giving, then part of that giving goes one to another because you become more dependent. And as you become more dependent on the Father, you're becoming more dependent on the community that God has established, His kingdom established on earth. You become more dependent on the church to give. And so we need to practice generosity to one another. We need to practice generosity outside of one another. We need to challenge our generosity one to another. The 21st century is going to be amazing. Some people say that there are more people today coming into the United States on mission, as missionaries, than we are actually sending people outside to other countries. Do you know that? That's what some scholars are saying, that there are more missionaries coming into the United States because they see the richest, most powerful country in the world, and yet godless, faithless, Christless. What will happen when these, you know who the missionaries are targeting? They're targeting the wealthy. Because imagine what potential can be unlocked if the wealthiest community in the world starts to radically give and pour into their cities because they've been shaped and transformed by the gospel. Imagine what will happen in our cities. The impact on the world. It begins with you. It begins with your eyes, what you see. Let's pray together.